The Gospel of John, chapter 5. If you are visiting with us this morning, we have been making our way for several months now through the Gospel of John, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we come to chapter 5 this morning, and as we come to chapter 5, we come to somewhat of a transition in the Gospel. So far, everyone has, for the most part, had a favorable response to Jesus. Nicodemus, Pharisee, a leader of the Jews, was curious about Jesus, about who He was. Many of the Jews were impressed by some of the miracles He had performed, turning water into wine. We saw Him go to a Samaritan woman and offer her living water, eternal life. He's healed an official son, and, and so far, everyone has, has pretty much been favorably disposed to him. But chapter 5 marks a transition in his ministry. Not a transition where he ceases to perform signs and wonders, but a transition where the people, as they become more and more aware who exactly he's claiming to be. Not just the king, but God himself. The people begin to turn on him and reject him. And so we are picking up where we left off last time, beginning in chapter 5, and I want to read from verses 1 down to verse 18 this morning. John writes there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. and While I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, 
because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before You this morning taking heed from what we see in Your Holy Word. Taking heed as we see Your people who were called by Your name rejecting Your Son Because what He was doing, the works He was doing, didn't square with their religious traditions. So Father, we take heed this morning that we we ourselves be not a people who exalt our traditions over Christ Himself. Father, I pray that as we, we hear Your Word this morning, as we see what Christ has to say about Himself, we would believe, knowing that that is John's desire in writing his Gospel, that we would see that Jesus is the promised Christ, the promised Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Son of God Himself who has eternally existed in the bosom of the Father and has come into this world to dwell among men and secure for them eternal eternal salvation. And so, Father, I pray that You would grant to us the illuminating power of Your Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, chapter 5 of John's Gospel is a monumental chapter. Because, as we will see, especially beginning next week, it is a chapter that allows us to peer into the eternal relations between the Father and the Son. It reveals to us the great authority that the Son of God has to raise the dead to life and the unity of actions among the persons of the eternal Godhead. It is one of those chapters, very much like John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where we are, in essence, allowed to go behind the veil of the temple and gaze upon the beauty and see what is in the Holy of Holies. We are able to see God Himself revealed in the Son. But this chapter also begins with a very familiar story of a healing. I'm sure that if you've grown up in a Christian environment for any amount of time, or if you have been to your fair share of VBSs, 
you have probably become familiar with this particular account about the healing at the pool of Bethesda. That is where we are. That is where we are picking up this morning. But I need to say that the beginning of this chapter is not primarily about a healing. The healing is secondary. The healing is intended to set the stage for the main topic, which is why the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. The main point of the passage, which is what we always want to know when we're reading our Bibles, is about the reasons why men rejected and sought to kill Jesus. These reasons, as we will see, are still very much the same reasons why men reject Jesus to the present day. Before we get into looking at this larger point more, I thought it was necessary to say a few things about verse 4. If you look with me in your Bibles, particularly if you have a more modern translation like the ESB, the NIV, or the Holman, you will probably notice that there is no verse 4. It's not there. It goes from verse 3 to verse 5. Of course, if you have an older translation, like the King James Version, which I know some of you do, you may not notice this, because you have a verse 4. Now some, who are generally given to embracing conspiracy theories, who believe that the King James Version is the divinely inspired translation, above all translations, that the Apostle Paul probably himself carried around on his missionary journeys. Some would look at the absence of this verse, verse 4, in modern translations, and can and do conclude that there is some kind of devilish conspiracy to cover up parts of the Word of God. It's interesting that many of them come to this conclusion as well, since even in modern translations, when the verse is not actually in the text right there, it's in a footnote. I don't know why you would do that if you've got a cover-up. This is not the case. There is no cover-up. There is no conspiracy. If you look at the end of verse 3, most of you will probably notice that there is a footnote there. And at the bottom of the page, you will have a note that says something like this. Some manuscripts insert, wholly or in part, that the blind, lame, and paralyzed were waiting for the moving of the water. And then comes verse 4. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So like I said, there's no conspiracy or cover-up. If you're going to have a conspiracy to cover up parts of the Word of God, you're not going to place the Word of God or the verse that you are um, removing in a footnote. But the question still is, why is verse 4 in many Bibles now in a footnote and not actually in the text as it is in, for example, the King James Well, as the footnote tells you, it's because of the manuscript evidence. The Bible, as we know, did not just come down out of heaven written for us in English. 
It was written over the course of thousands of years by many different authors. The Old Testament, largely written in Hebrew, parts of it written in Aramaic. The New Testament was written in Greek itself by many different authors. It was also handwritten. And when copies needed to be made, those copies would also be written by hand. Scribes would take a manuscript or multiple manuscripts. They would sit down and they would proceed either to faithfully copy the manuscript by reading it and then writing it down, or they would have someone else read out loud that manuscript and then they would copy what they heard. That was how new Bibles were made, by hand. Now this way of making copies of the Bible took place for well over, well over a thousand years until the invention of the printing press eventually made it unnecessary for scribes to have jobs anymore. And you could probably imagine that this way of making copies is far more susceptible to human errors than would be a printing press. A scribe could very easily be tired and commit a copying mistake as a result. The manuscript he's working with could have bad handwriting, so it could be hard to read, and he could have an error as a result as well. In fact, there is an entire field of study called textual criticism that is dedicated to examining ancient manuscripts, discerning how certain copying mistakes came into a text, and with that knowledge, scholars are then able, with a relatively high degree of certainty, they are able to determine what the original text said, what Paul wrote when he wrote his letters, and what John wrote when he wrote his gospel and letters alike. Now, when scholars, both Christians and non-Christians, come to verse 4 of John chapter 5, most of them conclude, and they conclude rightly, that verse 4 was not originally written by John. He never wrote it. Never sat down as he wrote his gospel and penned verse 4. And there's a few reasons why. There's probably about seven. I just want to give you a few of them so you understand why it is not there. First, the oldest and best Greek manuscripts that we have of John do not have verse 4. The oldest and best manuscripts we have. That means those manuscripts that go all the way back to the closest time of John. We have some that come probably within 20 to 50 years of when John wrote his gospel. And those old manuscripts don't have the verse there. So if you had been an early Christian and you were reading your Greek Bible and you were sitting down in the the second century reading the Gospel of John, as you read it, verse 4 is not there. So early on, it wasn't there. And because of that, scholars say that it came in later. Second, in many later manuscripts, later editions of the Bible, written in Greek and also in other language, verse 4 is there, but the scribes who have written it have put in little, they put in to the text little markers. Little indicators, letting the reader know that this verse 4, it's in the text, it's not original to John though. So the scribes themselves were telling Christians that this was not what John wrote. 
was just in a tradition. Third, it's very easy to see how this verse made its way into the text to begin with. When you read verse 7, you want to look at verse 7 for a second, you read verse 7 without verse 4, verse 7 almost demands some kind of explanation. In verse 7, the sick man says to Jesus, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it's very likely that a scribe was asking the same question and thought Christians might be asking the same question as well. He thought that this verse needed some kind of explanation, and so he wrote in a commentary. He put a commentary on the verse into the original text, or the the copy of the text he had. And that commentary on the verse, as more copies were made, eventually made it into the text itself. So that's why in verse 4, in a lot of modern Bibles, verse 4 is just a footnote. As we look at all of the evidence over history, it seems to be very clearly, in fact, that verse 4 was not written by John. And there's nothing in verse 4 that has any significant doctrinal weight. And you can see there would be no reason if there was some grand conspiracy to remove verses from the Bible, there would be no reason to remove this one. It has nothing to do with any major points of doctrine. I wanted to say that because it is, I mean you do just go from verse 3 to verse 5, And I wanted to give you a heads up as well that when we come to John chapter 8, if you want to go ahead and read ahead, we're going to have to look into this subject even more. Um, But I wanted to say those few words to begin with uh, so that we're on the same page with what John wrote. Now the situation that we find in John 5 is that Jesus is now leaving Galilee again and heading back to Jerusalem. When he comes to Jerusalem, there's a feast, and he goes to a pool that is just outside the temple that was called Bethesda. Bethesda means house of outpouring. The pool was housed in a building, as John describes, with five roofed colonnades. There were two colonnades on the north and the south side, two on the west and east side, and then there was one colonnade in the middle separating two courtyards, and one of those courtyards was where the pool was found. Jesus goes there and He approaches one man in particular who had had some kind of debilitating illness for 38 years. We don't know exactly what it was. We know there were different kinds of sick people there, some who were blind, some who were paralyzed, but this man had suffered with this illness for 38 years. And Jesus doesn't help the man get into the pool. He doesn't help the man get to where the man believes he needs to get in order to be healed. Jesus simply speaks to the man, get up, Take up your bed and walk. And the man does so. The authority and the power of the Word of Christ and His Word alone is enough to make the man well. John 1.3 says that all things were made through Him, that is Jesus as the eternal Word of God, and without Him was not anything made that was made. 
Before creation existed, Jesus called it into being out of nothing, and with the same authority and the same power He had when He called creation into existence, He called this man to get up and healed him. Like I said earlier, the healing is not the main point. The main point is about the reactions to the healing. It was rejected. The healing was rejected, and Jesus, the Son of God Himself, was rejected. And John wants to show us why. Why would men reject the work of God? Why would they see a man who they knew had been an invalid for 38 years, now up, alive and well, walking taking up his bed, and they reject the very work that they see. Why would they do that? Why would they ultimately reject the Son of God Himself? Well, there's two reasons that John gives to us. First, because they worshipped in a false religion. And because men worship in false religions. Look with me down at verse 16. John says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. After Jesus heals the man, John immediately tells us about the reactions of the Jews. Beginning in verse 9 and following. They confronted the man who had been healed, absolutely unconcerned about the miracle which had just happened to him. They were concerned about when it happened. The timing of the miracle. It was on the Sabbath day. And they said to the man in verse 10, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now notice that in this instance, they're not actually angry over the healing. There's other instances where they get angry at Jesus over healing someone on the Sabbath. But here, that is not the primary source of their anger. They are angry because this man had the audacity to pick up his bed. The Jews, which in this context is a technical term referring to the Pharisees, the religious elite, The Jews had very strict views of what could and could not be done on the Sabbath. And much of what they believed about the Sabbath stretched far beyond anything found in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, common work, regular work, the weekly work of a man, that specifically was what was forbidden to do on the Sabbath. Later Jewish Jewish teachings went much further than this. In fact, there's a Jewish book called the Book of Jubilees. And in that book, it is written that lifting any kind of item, exerting any kind of physical work, like lifting a bed, for example, was considered work, and doing so was considered a capital crime. So if you do something like lift your bed, you might be killed. Because the Sabbath was intended to be only a day of rest 
understood in the most extreme sense. And that is the problem that we find here. As the passage continues, the Jews question the man about who told him to take up his bed and walk. Initially, the man didn't know, as we are told, because there was a crowd there and Jesus withdrew. But then in verse 15, he finds out who it was and he tells the Jews it was Jesus. They didn't care that the power of His Word, by the power of His Word, He healed a man 38 years invalid. They didn't rejoice and praise Him for yet another confirmation that He was their Messiah. They rejected Jesus and began to persecute Him because He didn't conform to their religion. He didn't conform to the traditions of their rabbis which had been passed down from generation to the generation following. In fact, what they did was that they judged the Son of God by their religion rather than judging their religion by the Son of God. This is the fatal flaw that many people still make today. The order is wrong. The foundation of all of their thinking is wrong. Their presuppositions are wrong. Muslims, for example, begin with the foundation based on their text, based on the Quran, that Jesus was not the divine Son of God and that He did not die on a cross and rise from the dead. That is foundational to all of their religious beliefs. Denial of the Trinity and denial of who Jesus actually was and is. And because of this religious view that dictates how they see reality, that dictates how they understand the world, some Muslim scholars will go so far as to deny all historical evidence, both inside and outside the Bible, which clearly proves at a bare minimum that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on a cross. You don't have to be a believer. You don't have to be a Christian to examine the historical evidence and discover that there really was a historical man named Jesus who really was crucified on a cross. But because of this worldview that the Muslim has embraced, and because their holy text now informs all of their thinking, they will twist history itself to conform reality to their beliefs. Classic Protestant liberalism, as another example, begins with the foundational belief of anti-supernaturalism. The starting point for the Protestant liberal is that the supernatural does not exist. And if the supernatural doesn't exist, things like a resurrection could never happen. The virgin birth could never happen. And every other miraculous event that we find in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New, could never have happened. So what is the Protestant liberal left to do with the Bible then? 
Well, they must get really creative with their imaginations. And they must reinterpret all of Scripture to fit into their particular religious system. And this is, in fact, what happens. The resurrection is spiritualized. Lots of miracles are reinterpreted simply to be ancient explanations for natural occurrences. They reinterpret the Bible to fit an already preconceived system. And what happens when they do this? What happens when anyone forces Christ into a presupposed system? They miss completely who He actually is. They do not see Him as the King, and they most especially do not see Him as Savior, Lord, and God. When men worship false religions, it is as though they are blind men who have put glasses on, believing that the glasses now give them sight. They don't need new glasses They need new eyes. They need a miracle. Like the Apostle Paul, when he himself recovered his sight, the scales must fall from their eyes so they can see. And when they do, when a man is given sight, when the veil is lifted and he sees Christ as Savior, when he sees Him in all of His majesty, it is no longer possible for that man to conform Christ into his own image. Because Christ begins the work of conforming us into His. The Christian takes as his foundational principle that he does not stand in judgment over Christ, determining for himself what is good and right and true, and then making Christ fit into those preconceived beliefs. Christ stands in judgment over Him, revealing to Him through His Word, through the divinely inspired Word of God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what is good, and what is right, and what is true. Christ does this. And we not only see here in this text that men reject Jesus because they worship in false religions, that blind them to what they are beholding, but they reject Him because He also claims to be divine. He claims to be equal with God, and therefore as He claims to be equal with God, He is claiming to be God Himself, the Creator, the Son of God, the One through whom all things have come. In verse 16, the Jews charge Jesus with being a Sabbath breaker. He wasn't actually a Sabbath breaker, He just broke their version of the Sabbath. And we find Jesus responding to this charge in verse 17 with a very stunning claim. He says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Jewish rabbis had many debates about what it meant in Genesis chapter 2 
that God rested on the seventh day. Many debates, many different perspectives on what this actually meant. Yet despite all of the debates and all of the disagreements over its meaning, they all pretty much agreed on this one point. God has to continue working in some way. He is the Creator. And so even on the Sabbath day, He is working to sustain and uphold creation. And even on the Sabbath, God is continuing to create things new. As He creates children in the womb. As He creates new creatures. God is continuing to work even on the Sabbath. And this is what the Jews, despite all of their debates, recognized together. That God and God alone does work on the Sabbath. And it is on this point that Jesus makes His defense. He says, My Father, that is God. And they recognize that that is who He is referring to when He says, My Father. My Father God is working and I am working. The point He is making is that He is working because He, like the Father, is God. As he says at the end of verse 19, just a couple verses down, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. He was making a claim to divinity based upon his relation to the Father. And the Jews immediately picked up on this. John tells us that this was another reason why they wanted to kill Him. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. Now people will accept Jesus in many, many ways and for many different reasons. So far in John's Gospel, we have seen Jesus accepted for many reasons. Some wanted to see Him do amazing things, like turning water into wine, and so they followed Him. Some believed that He was a great teacher, perhaps even a prophet sent from God, and so they sought from Him knowledge. Some, as we will see in John 6, wanted Him to feed them bread. They loved what He could give them. And so they followed Him from one city to the next, hoping for a miraculous meal. But when Jesus made it clear who He was, when He claimed to be greater than Moses, when He claimed to be before Abraham, when He claimed that Isaiah's heavenly vision that He saw in Isaiah chapter 6, when He was beholding in heaven the Lord of hosts, when He saw the heavenly creatures crying out to God, saying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. When Jesus claimed that Isaiah saw Him in that moment, and when He claimed to be the unique Son of God, equal to the Father in His very being, the Jews then wanted nothing to do with Him. 
And it's the same today. Men will accept most any kind of Jesus except for the one who is God. They'll take Jesus if He's just a prophet. They'll take Jesus if He's a healer and a miracle worker. They'll take Jesus if He becomes to them just some kind of life coach. They'll take Jesus if He's tolerant. They'll take Jesus if He's just some moral philosopher or if He is just a good example to be followed. But declare to that man that Jesus is God and there is no other name under heaven by which a man must be saved. And you might see someone go from praising Jesus to cursing Him in the same breath. You see, when that claim is made, By necessity, it humbles a man. It confronts him with the reality of who God is and who the man really is. He is the creature and God is not. He is dependent and God is not. He is guilty and God is righteous. And these truths can be very frightening to many. And so like an animal who feels threatened, men will frequently lash out in response. But brothers and sisters, the truth of Jesus' divinity should never cause us to be frightened or threatened. For in Jesus we find revealed for us the greatest truth of them all. That this God who stands towering above us, who is the God of heaven and earth, who is the maker of all things, who stands above all sinners, is also the God who loves to save sinners. He is the God who has revealed Himself as the One who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Christian's God is no tyrant. He is not looking for opportunities to oppress His subjects. He does not have a short temper. He comes near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He is the God who keeps covenant with a covenant-breaking people. Despite all of our unfaithfulness that we as sinners might carry out, God has revealed Himself to be a God who keeps His covenants despite the unfaithfulness of others. And He is the God, as we see chiefly in Jesus, the God who is willing and who does humble Himself. The Son of the God, Son of God is the One who sat next to The Father who dwelled in His presence in His heavenly bosom from all eternity, and yet this Son was willing and did indeed take upon Himself the form of a servant. He came into this world, came to be rejected by His own people, His own creation. And so we find in this God one who indeed humbles Himself We find in this God, a God who cares about the social outcast. As we just saw in chapter 4, Jesus comes to a Samaritan woman. 
A woman who is rejected because of her birth status and a woman who is rejected because of her immoral lifestyle. She is rightly so a sinner. But yet Jesus desires to save such as these. And so He goes to the outcasts and He offers to them living water that will well up to eternal life. We see in this God as well, a God who sacrifices Himself to reconcile His enemies. What other God that we know of does something such as this? What other God will save sinners at the cost of His own blood? Well, this God is none other than Jesus Christ. We are a people who are from birth His enemies, and yet He has died to make us part of His own family. And He is the God, as we see all throughout the Bible, from beginning in the Old Testament prophets, beginning in the fall in Genesis 2 and 3, spanning all the way to Revelation. This is a God who has promised to make all things new. He's the God who's creating a new heavens and a new earth wherein there will be no sin, there will be no pain, there will be no tears, there will only be love and joy and peace everlasting. Now friends, as as we see Jesus, and as we see that Jesus is equal to God, this should be no terror to us. This should cause us no fright. This should cause us no concern. This, in fact, should be the greatest news that we have ever heard. Because when we hear this, friends, we are hearing that God has come into this world to dwell among men. He is not some distant Creator. He is not someone whom you cannot commune with. He is not blocked off from you by a whole host of religious traditions that serve only to separate you from your God. He is the God who comes so near that He takes upon Himself flesh and pours upon all of His people the Spirit of God. Friends, if we want to see God If we want to know God, we ought not to be afraid in any way of Jesus because in Jesus we find a God who comes near to the sinner and the brokenhearted. And if we want to see God and we want to know Him truly, there is no other place to go except Jesus. Because as the New Testament teaches us, when we see Jesus, we are seeing God Himself. When we hear Jesus speak, when we see Jesus heal a man, when He calls Lazarus to come out of the tomb, and His stench is no more because now He is a living man, we are seeing God raise the dead. And we are seeing a foretaste of what God has promised to all of His people. You want to know God. And you want people whom you know to know God. You point them to Jesus and to Jesus alone. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray, and we ask, and we cry out, that You would turn our eyes upon Christ. 
that You would restore to us as You have in Christ already. Restore to us the fellowship that was lost in the garden. The communion that was lost in the garden with God. Father, we, we ask that You would give us hearts to know and embrace and rejoice in the accomplished work of Christ. That Your Son has been sent into the world to reconcile sinners to Himself. So that not only might we have our sins forgiven, not only might our guilt be dealt with by Christ Himself, but so that we might, as You have promised, be adopted into Your family and be promised to be heirs of the Kingdom to come. Father, I pray that we would not ever be a people become so consumed with what the world has to offer that we do not see such a great salvation that is before us. Father, make us a people who rejoice in Jesus, who do not reject Him because He does not fit into our traditions, who do not reject Him because He is Your very own divine Son, but because of these very reasons, make us a people who embrace Him with all of our hearts and all of our minds, loving Him, for all eternity. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. And.